We are going to be starting a new series and a new conversation this morning entitled Reality Check, and we're going to be going for the next eight weeks or so through the book of James. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can open it up. Uh, actually, we're not, we'll start in verse one, but then we're going to jump around a little bit. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Alex will run one down to you. And, and as we start this series, it's real important to get a, a little backdrop on where James is coming from so that when he says some of the things he says, we have an understanding of why he is saying it because it's a very confronting book. I was originally going to entitle the series The Gauntlet, but most people don't know what The Gauntlet is. Some of the older people think it's a movie with Clint Eastwood back in 1977. But the whole idea of taking up The Gauntlet was a challenge. Laying down the gauntlet was throwing your medieval glove down on the ground and basically making a challenge. Picking up that glove was saying, I accept that challenge. But again, I didn't call it that, so I don't know why I'm telling you about this. But the idea is that we are going to be challenged. And we are going to be confronted with some very powerful things that are going to challenge how we see our faith. And so I've entitled it Reality Check. And verse 1 of James, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered, scattered among the nations. Greetings. And, and what's really powerful about this first verse isn't so much what it contains, but what it doesn't contain. You see, what it doesn't contain is the fact that James is the half-brother of Jesus. They had the same mother, but they had different fathers. But that's not something he puts down. You would think that would be bragging rights, wouldn't you? By the way, yeah, Jesus, he's, he's my hermano, you know. I don't know why I'm saying half the things I'm saying this morning. He's my brother. He is someone who I'm related to. I know him. Me and Jesus are, are really close. But he doesn't. And that is very telling, especially because we know quite a bit about James before he came to this place. This book is actually, they believe, the first book that was penned in the New Testament. We know that James was martyred and died around 63 AD. So this was the earliest writing that made it into the canon of Scripture. And James, we know from the book of Acts, was actually the pastor in Jerusalem. But before he became the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, before he became the pastor that was there in Jerusalem, let's go back and see the relationship that took place between James and his half-brother, Jesus. Go to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 20. Just a couple of verses. But these verses are so telling. It's... So interesting. How many of you have brothers? 
How many of you, how many of you have children that have brothers? Because <laughs> sometimes that's more telling than just having a brother, is seeing how siblings act together. They're very close and they're sometimes too close. They can be sometimes this confrontation. At least that's how it was in our household. There was this competition that always took place between brothers. Having twins, the twins were so competitive with each other. One year we signed them up to soccer because we needed to do something with them. And so we, we put them into soccer and figured, let them run. Maybe that'll help, you know. And so they were in soccer because they were in baseball and they were in other things. But soccer, they weren't really into soccer. And, and so they would be sitting there and you would see them, you know, at the practice and they'd be kind of, I don't want to run. And they'd just be sitting there and someone would come and they were kind of backing off the ball. They just weren't assertive at all. And so they didn't play much, which is, I think, their plan. But one time during the practice, one of the boys was sitting there and he was just kind of meandering out on the field and all of a sudden the coach called out to his brother because he had the ball. And I forget which one it was, if it was Jordan or Samuel, but all of a sudden the coach said, go Jordan! And once he said the word Jordan, I was watching Samuel and his eyes lit up and he became like a cheetah ready for attack. I'm not kidding. His demeanor changed. He got focused. He was later guided and he was out for blood. And if he could have maintained that attitude, he could have been amazing. But it only happened whenever Jordan had the ball because in his mind he says, I can take him. Or at least I'm going to try. Because there was this kind of rivalry and competition. And that's many times how it is with siblings. There's just a demeanor and a closeness that takes place there with them. And so in Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 20, Jesus is just starting his ministry. He has done something very controversial. He has healed on the Sabbath. And that went against all the rules of the religious people at that time. So they didn't like him breaking their rules Forget the fact that he healed and that was pretty amazing. Now all these people are flocking to him. And in verse 20 it says, Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. Did you read that? They went to take charge of Jesus. Who does that? Family. Right? They went to take charge of him. Get this, it gets better. For they said, he is out of his mind. His family thought he was out of his mind and they went to take charge of him. What you're doing is dangerous. You're starting something. You're not thinking this through. Whatever they were thinking, they went to take charge of him. Now, James is in this group. And it gets better. Turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, starting at verse 1. 
After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go about in Judea because the Jewish leaders there were looking for a way to kill him. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacle was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, here's James again, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So they're challenging. What are you doing? Why are you hanging out here? Are you afraid to go to Judea? You're afraid if you're really, you know, got something to show, show it where people can see. Why are you in the backwoods of Jerusalem in these areas? Why aren't you making a public show? They're challenging him because they did not yet believe him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go to the festival. I am not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he had said this, he stayed in Galilee. Now, what do you think that did to the family? Where's Jesus? He's staying in Galilee. I knew it. He never does anything with the family. You know, we've invited him. We've invited him. After all the things, I mean, who does he think he is? He's going around acting like he's the son of God or something. If he was really a son of God, why wouldn't he go to Judea and show himself? Why wouldn't he do these miracles? I think he's lost it. I think he's crazy. Now, I'm not making this up. That's what we just read. They thought he had lost his mind. So we see this dynamic taking place with Jesus and his family and his brothers. But everything changes after he is crucified and the resurrection takes place. You know, no matter how much you have against or how difficult things are with a member of family, when someone dies that's close to you, it hurts. And to see Jesus crucified and all the things that would go through your mind if that was your brother. And you're, you're thinking he's lost his mind and now this is the evidence he pushed it too far. He shouldn't have done this. And you're devastated. But then when you see that he is alive again, what do you do with that? Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting at verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. This is Paul writing, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Get this. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. Then he appeared 
to James. I just want to weep when I read that. Can you imagine that encounter? Can you imagine that dialogue? I'm telling you, there is so much my mind goes to. There is a movie here. There is something powerful that takes place. What do you say when you see your brother who you thought was crazy, who you thought was dead, is now alive? And what does he say to you? You see, James's world has just been shook upside down. Because what he once thought was insane, what he thought was foolishness, has now gripped his life and he will now center his life on this new truth that my brother is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Lord, and it changes everything everything. And so he goes from a person who no longer believes, a person who thinks he's lost his mind, to a person who now bows his knee and becomes a follower. And that Jesus would appear to James, again, is endearing. He doesn't neglect his family, he actually goes to James. And oh, I just wish I had a recording of that. What did he say? Did he do what brothers do? Did he surprise him? Scare him? Hey, you know, what happened? What do you think now? Did he reconcile with him? Did James fall down and say, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't believe. Something powerful took place. And now we see James also in Acts chapter 1, a part of the whole. He's now a part of the followers, and there he is in Acts chapter 1 with the other disciples in verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, there's a lot of Jameses here, son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James, another son of James. They were all joined together constantly a prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. And now that's the James who's writing this epistle. He is now there in the upper room. He is now part of the group. He is now a follower. He is now a believer. He has now been made aware that Jesus is the Messiah. And so James now becomes a central figure there in Jerusalem and becomes one of the go-to guys when decisions need to be made. What are we going to do about these Gentiles in Acts chapter 15? They go to Jerusalem, they have a council, and James is the one who says, this is what I think we should do. He's one of the chief speakers for this new movement. And he stays there in Jerusalem. But when he talks 
about those who are scattered. Back to James chapter 1. When he talks to those who are scattered abroad, what he's doing is talking about those who had to deal with the fact that there was a persecution to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. The 12 tribes, he is writing specifically to the Jewish believers. Those who came to be followers of Christ, but who originally had the faith of the Jewish people. So he's not writing to the Gentiles. He's writing to those who are already a part of this Jewish tradition. But when they became followers of Christ, there was a tremendous persecution that took place. And we see that in Acts chapter 8, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. And so when they start killing people, people start moving. Usually happens that way. You know, hey, they're killing everyone. Let's move. Let's go down by the beach, anywhere. You know, let's just get out of Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem has now become dangerous for those who are followers of Christ. But James stays there. And so he's writing to all these people who are scattered around to these Jewish believers. And you see, James is now a follower of Christ who happens to be Jewish. He's not a Jewish Christian. He is a follower of Christ who has a Jewish tradition. And he's writing to those who have the same tradition. And it's important that we understand this because as he's talking to these people, he's talking to people who were followers of the law. He's talking to people who are familiar with their traditions. He's talking to people who believe that because of who they were as far as their nationality, it meant that they were right with God. And so we're going to see that is exactly how he directs a lot of his conversation through this book. And we need to remember this, otherwise we'll start to misinterpret a lot of the things that James is saying. And so here is James writing to all these Jewish believers, some who were in Jerusalem who had to leave for fear of their lives, who maybe lost people that they loved, who maybe businesses now were gone, who were impoverished. In the book of Acts, there was actually a collection taken for the church in Jerusalem because they were so impoverished, because they were scattered, because they were in such a bad state because of the persecution. And, and so he's writing to those Jewish followers or maybe those Jews who became followers of Christ through Paul's ministry. But he's writing to these Christians who are of Jewish descent. And it's important that we understand that. And then he, he's going to challenge us over and over again. And he's going to use pictures and he's going to be very descriptive. And a lot of his writings are very similar to Jesus' writings. The way he uses stories, you're going to see that he does talk a lot like his half-brother. Yeah, he was with them for a long time. But now everything has changed. And so he starts in verse 2, again, of James chapter 1. And he says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because... 
you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, James starts off with this statement that I don't know about you, but every time I read it, I, I cringe. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. I don't know anybody who counts it all joy when they face trials of various kinds. I'm just telling you. And I know a lot of you, okay? I know me. I know that I don't go, whoopee. Look at a trial with joy. That's not my response, usually. And when he says of various kinds, it's kind of like multicolored. It means from so many different places. How can he say this? He can say this because of who he was and who he now is. See, the reason he could say, count it all joy, is because he knows there is something more that now shapes my thoughts. There is something bigger that shapes the, the conversation I have, that shapes the direction of my life. There is something invisible that has now become tangible in my life. You see, I know that Jesus is alive. I know that he is the Messiah. I have seen him. I have talked to him. And it's not like he's just flippantly saying, count it all joy with the various types of trials. He has seen people die. He himself is going to die for his faith. He is writing this in a world without Novocaine or morphine. He is writing this at a time where pain is felt just like we feel it. He is talking about this in a time where poverty is greater than what we know. Where basically they are all still slaves. And he has the nerve, he has the audacity to say, count it joy. When all these things happen and you say, why? He says, because I see something else. Something else is shaping the way I see life now. And it's much bigger than I used to see. And you see, I, I think many of us, we think that life is harder than it's supposed to be. And when things happen, we're like, why is this happening to me? Trials are, are not in our sphere of joy because we are looking for something less. And James is trying to show us something more. He's trying to show us that your life, even when you are in the worst of situations, has purpose. Your life, even when things are really, really bad, is of tremendous value 
that so much so that God is at work even in the difficulty. And what he is doing is producing perseverance. Another word for perseverance could be resilience. God is making you substantial. He's making you genuine. He's making you whole. So your life isn't just a matter of your circumstances. Your life isn't just, well, things are going good this week. Why? Because I got paid. Things are going bad this week. Why? Because I ran out of gas. Things are going good this week. Why? Because I went shopping. Things are going bad this week. Why? Because I had to pay for the things I went shopping for. He's now giving us a foundation that our lives are being built on that is greater than we could imagine. And we keep wanting to make it less. And James is saying, no, something big is happening in your life. Count it joy. Bring joy into now this perspective because you know that God is working perseverance resilience in you he's producing strength in you we need to develop a proper relationship with joy we need to have understanding of what joy is and you see sometimes it is through the difficulties that we start to recognize what really is important c.s lewis writes wrote, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It is in those difficult situations that God is shouting, saying there is more than what you are experiencing. There is more to your life than just the things you go through. You are of substantial more value than what you're giving yourself credit for. And don't let this circumstance shape your future. Your future is shaped by the truth of who I am. And that's what happened to James. He encountered Jesus and it changed everything. The risen Jesus... He came to James, appeared to him, and James' eyes were open, and he saw everything different. What's it going to take to open our eyes? To be able to see the world different, to be able to see our lives different, to be able to live with an intention of more than just our experience to recognize that your life is not just about going to work and then coming home. It's not just about the the things that happen to you, that your life is connected to something far more than you can imagine. If you are a follower of Christ, you are now part of the work of God in humanity. Do you see that? Or is it still just about what happened to me this week? What happened to me today? 
what's going to happen to me tomorrow? Are you connected to something bigger? Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 8. God has always been trying to get us to understand his involvement, not only with our lives, but the world around us. He's always been wanting to include us with the work he is doing. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 1, it says, Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today, so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness those 40 years. Why? To humble and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commandments. Now, do you think God didn't know what was in their hearts? No. So what's he revealing? He's revealing what is in our hearts. You see, we see who we really are when we go through these difficulties. I I see how much a person trusts God when they're in a place where they need to trust God. Because when you're not in a place where you need to trust God, it's easy to trust God. Yeah, things are good. God's great. Hallelujah. And then something catastrophic happens. What are you really made of? God, where are you? How could you? I need to call the pastor. I need to call someone. I need to do something. I need to take... And you panic. Okay, now I see what's really in your heart. And so the Lord did this to test and see what was in their hearts, really to expose their hearts. And that's exactly what happens through difficulty. It exposes what's in our hearts. Verse 3, He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God Your clothes did not wear out. Your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord God disciplines you. Now those words should remind you of another person who said man does not live by bread alone. And it was Jesus when he was taken to the wilderness. It was when he was in a situation of difficulty, hadn't eaten, was starving to death in the desert. And he was being led away to be tempted because then we're going to see what he's really made of. And so when he's tempted and he says, the devil says to him, take these rocks and, and turn them to bread. And Jesus says, man does not live by bread alone. He didn't say the son of God does not have to live by bread alone. He said, man. You see, because Jesus at that moment dealt with the trial, the way a man is supposed to. He saw something more taking place. And so he could say, no, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Here's Jesus identifying with the children of Israel in the desert all those years. But here he is, instead of murmuring, complaining, And grumbling, here he is trusting and believing. And here we see the true character of who he is 
in the time of difficulty. Hebrews tells us that though he were a son, yet he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered because he trusted in those times when he suffered. You and I learn obedience in the times of suffering. Why? Because we have to take it? No, because we trust and we see more, not less. You know, the church that was being persecuted in Jerusalem, it wasn't God killing people. It was people killing people. But God used it to spread the gospel. He does what we cannot imagine at times that we think we're helpless. By them causing persecution in Jerusalem, it actually caused the gospel to spread throughout the world. Why? Because there's more taking place than we see. Because you are of value to me even though you're being persecuted. I can use you in Judea and Samaria. I can use you in Rome. I can use you in Corinth. I can use you in all these other cities. Oh, how I can use you. And if we would see that, we could count it joy. We could then include joy into our vocabulary of difficulty. Why? Because God is still at work. Because something is taking place. I trust him in this situation. I am going to be a follower of him even through this time. And it's important that we recognize those things because then he goes on and he says, but verse six, when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded, unstable in all they do. You need to believe. You need to see this. You, You need to trust. When you pray, you're not just reciting a prayer. You're not just putting something down on a piece of paper. You're not just, you know, repeating something that you've heard. What you're doing is talking to God and he is responding to you. You're having a conversation with the creator of the universe who has made himself known to you personally through the person of Jesus Christ. If you don't believe that, then it doesn't matter what you say. There's no playing games here. You either trust him or you're just spouting off words. What is it? And this is going to be the challenge for us throughout this book. This is going to be the reality check. Do I really believe? Is my faith substantial? And when I say my faith, it doesn't mean am I saved. I mean, is my belief in Christ producing anything? Because if I say I'm a follower of Jesus, but my life proves nothing, what good is my life to the work of God? 
if I say I trust God, but every time there's a, a difficulty in my life, I panic, I melt, and I freak out, and I break down, where is the trust of God? Do I talk to him and ask him? You see, I don't know what you're doing, God. Okay, ask, and I will give wisdom. If you lack it, ask for it, because I am here, and I hear you, and I can talk to you, and I can answer you in this situation. And when you are in the darkest place of your life, and the voice of God pierces your heart, and you realize that there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still, your life will swell with faith. And what can man do to me? If God is for me, who can be against me? And it doesn't matter, though we are being killed daily like sheep to the slaughter. Nothing can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Not height nor depth, things present, things to come, principalities, things on earth. It doesn't matter. It doesn't change the fact that he loves me, he's with me, and my life is connected to his life and purpose. That is faith. Is that what I have? And if it's not, it's good to know. It's good to know if your faith is lacking. Because God is letting you know you can step into more anytime you want to. You can step into the big picture. You just need to change your perspective. You need to open your eyes. You need to trust. You need to believe. Because I am here. And you will find joy in the craziest places. It might look a lot different than what you thought joy looked like. But there will be a, a beam of light that will pierce your soul and will light your path and will give your life hope. Let's pray. Lord, we never have to live our lives without meaning. There is never a time where circumstances can come and take away our purpose. And God, you are able to turn our mourning into meaning, into dancing. You are able to take the darkest times and produce the greatest things. And Lord, what we really want is to be made whole, to be lacking nothing, to be fully human like Jesus was. To be able to say, man does not live by bread alone. There is something more. There is something greater. There is purpose beyond just the material. There are so much more if we would just embrace it. There is so much to live for if we would but see it. 
and, and help us to get out of our closed thinking. Help us to see joy differently. Help us to see trials differently. Help us to see you in the midst of it. That you are at work within us, producing perseverance, making us resilient, making us useful, making us whole. God, we need to be whole. And unless we're connected to your life and the life you give, there is nothing that will bring meaning to the life we live. Unless we are connected to your purpose, everything else will be falling short of satisfaction. Lord, what we want is real joy. What we want is to be lacking nothing, to be mature, to be whole. So challenge us through this series and and through these talks. Challenge us through this book. Confront us with our narrow-mindedness. Challenge us with our lack of faith. Expose us in our disbelief so that we can truly believe. We do ask that you would do these things and we will count it joy. In your name, Jesus. Amen.